25, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let me lead you in a prayer. This is the word of the Lord. We've just said thanks be to God and we pray with thanksgiving as we consider as a company of your people the teaching from Holy Scripture. May your Holy Spirit's presence dwell in our midst, guide my words and galvanize our thinking and listening. And may our footsteps glorify you for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. It's uh, your whole body will be going into the fire of hell. And then verse 31, give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, So friends, I don't know which one you'd like me to focus on most. (laughs) I mean, broadly speaking, and I do mean this most seriously, prevention is better than cure. That's got to be uh, the main heading. And as a vicar who's been here just over two years, I do see more people here this morning than often I do. You are welcome back on other Sundays. And I trust me, we don't often speak about this sort of thing. But I didn't, didn't make it up. It, it's there in the good book. Some of you know that since Christmas I've been struggling with a minor, very minor, don't shower me with sympathy, please, I won't be able to cope with this, Uh, a very minor knee injury and I've developed a private obsession looking at YouTube clips to fix the wretched thing. Uh, Looking at them doesn't help at all but if you put into practice what they say it kind of might help. And one of the more bizarre ones uh, my wife just said to me as I explained what I was doing she said, that's weird. (laughs) Trust me, after 33 years of marriage she's got used to weird, Mark. But it's walking backwards And when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, there's something in that, because if the old one's going when you're walking forwards, if you kind of reverse everything and walk backwards, maybe that'd get better. I've been trying this. (laughs) You bump into things and fall over. But I'm going to get it better. You'll be glad to know I'm not walking straight into adultery and divorce and hell this morning. Okay, we're walking backwards into heaven, fidelity of marriage and beauty, to get the point. But I am going to have to mention hell, divorce and adultery. 
And if, if you are feeling uncomfortable about listening to some of these things, can I please, please reassure you? Obviously, I want you to hear that prevention is better than cure, but cure can be helped. And if you're wanting to help with walking forwards into heaven, marriage and fidelity and enjoyment, then I trust there'll be something for you here. But I've known professionally as a minister some very happy times managing and encouraging the public putting on of divorce recovery workshops. For those who can commit to it, it is transformatory. Because as the lawyers will tell you, as the house prices tell you, and some children's psychologists, not all, divorce can have effect on money, housing, personal psychology and family. But recovery and restoration is possible with Christ. And sexual infidelity, of which adultery is just but one, with appropriate confession, supportive counsel and guidance from other, restitution and reformation can be made. I've seen it. I've experienced it in those that have been supportively cared for within the framework of the Christian church. Well, Mark, what are you going to do with hell? Because Jesus mentions that as well. In all my years, I think uh, I've only ever encountered one pastoral episode where I've even entertained the thought that ultimate blasphemy has been caused the unforgivable sin, to use the words of Jesus, and therefore the doors of hell will be locked on the outside and God is locking the key and he's throwing it away. And even then I thought, no, I'm not going to entertain that thought even more because it's not my job or place. And if pastorally you're feeling I've committed the unforgivable sin and hell either personally or at the end of my day or through my life, is what I'm going to experience now. Trust me on the evidence of Holy Scripture, the mere fact you're thinking about it, or in conversation about it, you're not in danger of having that happen to you. One of my favourite phrases, there's a wideness in God's mercy that is broader than man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. The thought that God himself would lock the doors of hell, throw away the key and show no interest, I find personally unpalatable and not particularly agreeable to speak on or converse with people over. So I won't. And here's the reason I won't. The Bible says I don't have to. Because at the end of the days, when we meet the Lord, in radiant splendor, there's a beautiful picture of him with his belt arrayed with glorious grace and at his belt hangs the keys of death and Hades and heaven. It is not for us or the church to judge. It is for him to give the word. But most of his words are kind, are merciful and gracious and restorative. So let's tackle this subject, as it were, head-on. But do remember, as I've said, we're walking into marriage, fidelity, blessing and life, rather than backpedalling too much 
into grief and mess the other way. So these words of Jesus are contained within Matthew's Gospel. And I think of all the Gospels, the mere fact that it's the longest, it has the greatest treatment of Jesus' birth, his teaching, his life, his healing, his ministry, and his resurrection should tell us something. But what most people don't realize about Matthew's Gospel is it parallels the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. I've missed out the order. Deuteronomy is before Numbers. There are five blocks of teaching in Matthew's Gospel, and they are each meant to mirror the Torah or the teaching of the Old Testament. So when Jewish people who were familiar with the Old Testament read Matthew's Gospel and they re-looked at the teaching that was contained there, they would know for certain as the Torah was meant to hold you into life and grace and goodness and blessing, so this teaching also will hold you in the place of life, teaching and blessing. These words of Jesus, whilst they are resting and shocking, come as part of a wider block of Matthew's manual of teaching for life. So in chapters 5 to 7, you have specific instructions about life. In chapter 10, you have something to do with the church and the disciples engaging in the real world. In chapter 13, you have teaching about the kingdom of God. In chapter 18, you have teaching about the church. And in chapters 23 to 25, you have teaching about the end and the judgment of Christ. You can't look at one without considering the rest. And of course the person it's referring to. His birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And Matthew's gospel also must be contained within the wider orbit of Christian teaching through Holy Scripture. So this specific instruction about how Jesus says marriage should be honoured by not tipping over into divorce, by not tipping over into adultery, should be held in the context of Genesis, Adam and Eve, should be held in the context of Revelation. There is a bride, and it's the holy, pure Christian church. There is a bridegroom, none other than the Saviour, at whose belt hangs the keys of death and Hades. And the Church of England, for a while, and I hope for a very long while, seems to understand this with the little-mentioned Canon B30, which says that when ministers conduct a marriage between a man and a woman, that's sacred, that's holy, that's definitive. It's Adam and Eve. It's Christ and his bride. Marriage is for a man and a woman. Alarming at some point that the Church of England seems to think it could possibly be between a woman and a woman or a man and a man. And there's a rubrics cube of a theological problem that if you bless same-sex couples, somehow how do you make it seem that it's not a marriage? That's a problem I do have with the Church of England at the moment. Unless that's stopped, the perception of it will be that Christ and his bride, the man and a woman, and the sanctity of Christian marriage that's there referred to in Matthew's Gospel with the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and blessing of Christ 
for all of us, not just the Christian church, but for humanity, could well go down the wrong road. That, friends, is another story. But that's the context for Matthew's word and teaching. Where should Matthew's words and Matthew's manual be kept? If this is a manual of Christian living and it's five sections in between all that Jesus was and is and wants to be for us, who should be listening to this manual? Briefly to mention three before we look at the words of Jesus, taking seriously the words of Matthew. Sex education for children. I have five children, granted specifically talking about sexual activity with one's children is a lot harder, trust me, than giving a sermon on adultery and divorce and hell. I've done it. Try not to do that. Don't do that. Whatever age you think as parents you should engage with your children in talking about this, can I friendly say as a gutsy granddad, think of the age and then wheel it back two years because the internet and the playground will be well, well ahead of you. And the manual for grandparents. How supportive are you of supporting children that they're your children, that they might enjoy marriage themselves. You yourselves know some of the pressures and difficulties that are contained within God's wonderful design. Who else needs to hear this manual of teaching? The Church of England at this time, I have to say, although how you engage with uh, the wider structure of the Church of England is currently quite not traumatic, but problematic. The bishops themselves don't seem to agree. So too, I think, do single people. I've preached this sermon at 9.15, and the most, most frequent comment I've had was not from married people, but from single people, who said to me, Mark, thank you so much for mentioning singleness. Because when it talks about marriage in Genesis and uh, singleness in 1 Corinthians, the same word is used. And it's not a moral word, a right and a wrong word. And most people are sitting there thinking, well, I wonder what the vicar's going to say. Is divorce wrong? Is adultery wrong? Well, yes and yes. But this is not about right and wrong. This is about beauty and wholesomeness and loveliness. And so in Genesis it says, when God sees a man and a woman... He says it's not beautiful that they're alone. It's not lovely that they're alone. It doesn't look particularly wholesome. I mean, he's sitting there thinking to himself, they're going to get lonely. They need each other. It's not good that they're alone. So Eve is made for Adam. It's the same beautiful, holistic word that's used by Paul to commend the single state by those who find it on them for force of circumstance or choice. Paul describes this as a beautiful, lovely, wholesome gift that you can give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. So Matthew's words and now Jesus' words. Probably harder to listen to because I don't think these are 
a sympathetic, serendipitous sort of comment where you eagerly engage in a conversation. You say such things like, well, I guess this happens today, doesn't it? Well, that's the way of the world. Jesus' words are stern and quite shocking. It refers to an eye gate. It refers to a hand gate. Curious there's no ear gate, but I'm sure you follow it. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. These are shocking words, deliberately, and he uses, it's better that you cut your hand off or you pluck your eye out than you go into hell. And here is Jesus himself who does not want anyone to suffer. You're you're walking in the wrong direction. You'd be better even to look stupid and walk backwards than head headlong into destruction. Of course, with eye gate and hand gate, the main gate of entry, of course, is into our hearts. And it isn't the case that Jesus says, well, you that have a problem with your eyes, you really do have a problem, or you that have a problem with your hands, the you is not explicitly or exclusively for you, it's inclusive of everyone. And so when Jesus says, come unto me all you who are heavy laden and weary, you come to me and I will give you rest. In other words, Jesus' words are not just for the people who have sensed they've fallen. This is a word of warning to everyone, lest we should fall. Friends, I don't find this easy to say as a man, but it is a particular descriptive of society and how things are going. But a few years back, if you asked the question, who most frequently looked at pornography, by and large, it was men. If you ask the stats by which uh, a couple were uh, treated unfairly or with abuse or disrespect or were emotionally manipulated in some way, shape or form, by and large it was the men doing it to women. But a mere descriptive of what's happening today, and I find it difficult to nuance as a man speaking now, of course, but the rates of women drawn into pornography and addiction or the number of men I certainly have to listen to, signal that they sense they are abused or manipulated by women in aggressive and inappropriate ways, is on the increase. Two wrongs don't make a right. Prevention is better than cure, and all situations can be cured. But it is to describe how things are with Jesus' words. Please, please be careful, he's saying. Don't do it. Don't look. Don't put your hand out. Matthew's words, words that we might be blessed. Jesus' words, shocking words from our most loving Saviour, for he knows what's in all of our hearts. And it's through the heart that the eye and the hands are tempted And now to conclude our own words. Wonderful yesterday as we'll be thinking of later on in the sermon to celebrate 
Simon's ordination to the priesthood, and as happens at 42 cathedrals around our country, uh, round about this time of year, men and women head down the track of formal Church of England ministry, which is public and authorised. And the tear-jerking moment for me in the service is not all the fancy words of the bishop or all the things the priests that are going to be are saying. It's when the gathered company of the cathedral say, in answer to the bishop's question, will you support them? And there's normally a whoop and a cheer. Oh, at last they've got a career. (laughs) Oh, at last we're going to have someone good at the front, or whatever it is. Yeah, we'll support them. It happens in marriage services. Despite the cost of a wedding, despite all the dress and the hats and all the paraphernalia that goes with it, you can see where my loyalties are, can't you? There's a wonderful line where the vicar says, Will you, the family and friends of Simon and Rebecca, support and uphold them now and in the years to come? And the whole company says, we will. I had a fascinating one recently where, as I was preparing the couple, they were standing before me. She looked at him and said, under her breath, although I could hear it, unfortunately, The microphone didn't pick it up, but he certainly got it. Will you please cheer up? (laughs) I thought, well, we're in for a good one here. Get them off on their honeymoon quick. But to cheer up marriage, not after the first year or the fifth year or the seventh year itch or going forward, it is not just the duty of the individuals or the couple, but the whole company of God's people to support them. Oh, the blessedness of a Christian church where single people understand the pressures of married life. It doesn't always, always work out. It is not always happy. But some single people just kind of get that and offer a period of refreshment and counsel. And oh, the blessedness of a Christian church where despite the fact that single people are there all the time for everything you're wanting to do, some married people do understand that it's occasionally lonely and difficult. There's no point in the finger. It's the open arms of a loving God for a loving Christian community. Our own words then. What sort of words should we be using To married couples, I love you. Also to married couples, I'm sorry. To married couples, I'm committed to you. I still think I know what to do when people have got sad eyes. That's the job of a pastor, just to lift them up. The ones I really like are those with sparkles in their eyes. I had a lovely one recently. I never wanted to divorce my husband But murder him, yes. (laughs) Within the covenant and the agreement that you're stuck together for life, things can be worked out, even if it goes by the route of murder. You know what I mean. A young, I'm sure you know the famous book by Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace? Uh, There was a young lady, it could also be a young man, and it could also be an older lady or an older man. 
walking outside the church and a friendly, supportive Christian said after listening to their woes and their struggles and difficulties with relationships and sexual discussions are not easy to express or listen to. So isn't it lovely when you find people with maturity and emotional intelligence that can engage with these things? Or at least if you can't, find someone to point you to professional help that you can. And this person was switched on after and said, look, just, just, just come into church. Just, just come. So Philip Yancey says in this lovely book, What's So Amazing About Grace, the instinctive response back was, I couldn't possibly do that. I feel guilty enough as it is. How tragic and sad. A Christian community are communities of fallen, failed people who in whatever way, shape or form have blown it with God. All they're doing is admitting that they need Jesus. Sometimes the infidelities of divorce and adultery are a lot more public and glaring but they're no less problematic than any of the lovely people I'm looking at or any of the lovely pastor you're looking at now. Come on. We've all failed. We all need Christ. We all need Matthew's manual of teaching of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Christ. We all need these words of Jesus that says, I love you, receive my bread, Taste my wine on your lips and don't do it. You're walking in the direction virtually of hell. And we all need to, the words of each other, to spur us on our way. Let me lead you in a prayer. Father, please take away any words that I've said that are unhelpful. And may the words that are helpful for the building up of your people here remain. We pray for our own words to each other, that they might be kind and considerate, restorative, holy and helpful, to lead us in the way of Christ, that we might be blessed in this life and the next. For Jesus' sake. Amen.